0: This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice.
1: Where we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. I'm Jenna Ermold, Assistant Director of Training and Education, and joined by podcast co conspirator, Dr. Kevin Holloway, Director hey. of Training and Education. Hey, Kevin. How are you? And today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Kelly Cressman, who is by far one of CDP's top PE mavens, uh, extraordinaire. 20 plus years in the field of working with prolonged exposure. Kelly is a fantastic instructor and also one of our PE consultants. So, Kelly, welcome to Practical for Your Practice. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun to be here. So, today we thought we would uh, have a conversation with you about some things that we're noticing in consultation. So, CDP does uh, consultation for prolonged exposure, both Just kind of a general consultation group and we consult with specific military installations and and Kevin Kelly and I are are all a part of that. And one of the things that's been striking to us is all the amazing work that providers are doing to try and work with their, excuse me. Uh, especially in vivo work with clients amidst this pandemic. So, um, you know, we we have a pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders in place at times, and providers are having to really evaluate and think about what is safe. You know, when we when we do an in vivo hierarchy, one of the things we have to determine is how relative risk and how safe an item is, right? Um, and. You know, COVID and the pandemics kind of changed that game a little bit for providers. So we thought we'd talk today about what are some of the things we're seeing when we're hearing, when we do consultation, um, and share maybe some of the the strategies we've helped some providers employ around that. So I guess, Kelly, if you can kick us off, um, and in general, what are some of the concerns we're seeing and some of the questions we're answering? Well, it, in the
2: beginning of the pandemic, it, I think people were super concerned because they were thinking, I think in our imaginations, we think every in vivo exposure has to do with going out into a crowd because crowds end up on almost every in exposure list regardless of what the trauma is. And so um, I think people were focusing on, oh my gosh, I can't send my clients out into a crowd during this pandemic because they'll get sick. And they were forgetting that there were so many other things on the in vivo exposure that they could work on. Um, so that was one thing. And I think, I think since, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've kind of settled down about that and we've figured out, you know, there are some instances where we can do some crowd exposures. Um, there are people we, probably won't ever send out into a crowd. For example, if somebody's immune compromised or they just had chemotherapy. Um, but but by and large, if people are wearing their masks and and using their hand sanitizers and and it, it, observing social distancing, then we can send them into crowds. I would say though, um, all of those precautions we take change the nature of the exposure.
0: Well, I was going to so, ask you a question about that, Kelly. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, you know, we... <laughs> And we think about that too. I think that's where I was at the beginning of the pandemic as well, is worrying about sending people out into the world that we had all been told not to go out into, right and, yeah, and thinking sure. about and thinking about you know just the the, the actual real danger about those mm-hmm. situations that they're different because of the pandemic than they would be otherwise. But then you know, like you said, we, we've settled down and we can think about ways that in general people can safely. At least be out of their houses, right? And, mm-hmm. and limiting crowds and and social distancing and such. But like you just said, it kind of changes the nature of the exposure for some people, right? Like if you've got a client that you want to send to a big box store, most of the time we can think about, okay, well, you can probably be there and you can you wear your mask and you use the hand sanitizer. And for some people, that's fine because the the thing that they're avoiding. At a place like a big box store may have nothing to do with whether their face is visible or whether they have to touch things, right? And I'm thinking right. things that are kind of overlapping, maybe a little more with OCD things too. But what about for those people that you know that that person that was worried about if they go out in public among other people that they're gonna get overwhelmed and and then they're gonna fall apart and they're gonna look really embarrassed or they're gonna do mm-hmm. something really crazy. And that mask changes it because it gives them some anonymity or it hides their facial expressions or their natural reactions.
2: That's right. And and you won't know that if you don't ask the patient. Mm-hmm. And you won't know that if you don't identify with the patient what their worst, you know, consequence would be. So when we when we send people out to do exposures regardless of the pandemic, we say to them before they, you know, before they, they go, we kind of remind them, okay, this item on your exposure hierarchy, you know, when you do this, what's, when you think about doing this right now, what's, what's, what do you worry about will happen? And so they tell us, and, and if somehow the mask changes, whether they worry about that or not, like, I, I know I've had a patient who worried about being recognized And Mm -hmm. gosh, this is a gift. (laughs) Being able to wear a mask everywhere is like the best avoidance ever because they can hide behind a mask. Exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, so you want to think about those things and and you might not, you know, if you don't ask those questions, you won't get those answers. So I I think it's... In all times, not just during the pandemic, we need to ask our patients, what are you worried about will happen? And how can we do exposure in a way that will show you this isn't a realistic fear, this isn't a, you know, something that you need to be worried about in that situation. So I would ask about the mask, I would ask about, you know, What it is they worry about when they if they wear it versus when they don't wear it, 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 their suds may change. For example, if they wear the mask, they may be less or more anxious than if they than if they don't. So um, that's an important thing to think about. I, crowds aren't the only thing, though, and I think for for a lot of people, crowds. Crowd sort of gets magnified because there are other people involved and and you know they have to they have to go out into an unknown place, but there are lots of things on people's in vivo hierarchies that have nothing to do with contact with other people and so starting with a lot of those things can be really helpful not just to not have to go out into crowds but also to give people kind of Training And how to do in vivo exposure. So starting with things that are less complicated. The other thing I would say about crowds is, whether it's a pandemic or not, crowds often include multiple stimuli. So, okay. you know, it's not just being around other people. It's what might happen when, when other people are around. It's different kinds of people which may have different levels of anxiety associated with them. So, for example, men and women are big people, small people, uh, people of different races or who speak different languages, people who are, you know, who represent in some way a trigger. More crowds have smells too. You
1: know, perfume, cologne.
2: Yes, actually, smells, sounds, uh, Mm -hmm. places that the crowd could be. Right. kids screaming. And and so one of the rules of thumb when you do exposure is you really want to do exposure to one stimuli at a time. When you do crowd exposure, you're actually, there's no way you can just do exposure to the one stimuli at a time. And so um, you really want to think about what other stimuli might be present. And to me, that makes crowds higher on the list that even if someone is rating them relatively low, I would look to see if there are other things that might happen during the crowd that might be on some of their other items. Um,
1: and, and then so you, make that decision accordingly. Sorry, go, I oh, see. Go ahead. <laughs> so so you, we we are we're so eager to talk to you, Kelly. Um so you're you're kind of mentioning you've alluding to this idea that there's it's it, you know it's not just about crowds. Um right. and, and we've got lots of other things on the list. One of the things I found interesting, and I and, and listening to you consult sometimes, Kelly, um, is how do we help people leverage technology? You know, how do we, if we can't send them out to crowds or that's not where they are yet and they've got these other items, you know, what kind of creative things have you seen folks doing or have you suggested? Um and, in leveraging some technology,
2: well, the internet has been the biggest gift to exposure therapy that uh-huh. ever was. i mean if if there's something that makes someone anxious, you can find a video about it, or you can find a sound recording, or you can find an image online that um, that'll be pretty close to what they worry about. Um, and that often is a good entry level exposure for for someone who's worried about particular things happening. So for example, if somebody's worried about crowds, they may they may be worried about um people getting close to them and bumping into them and maybe being dangerous. So watching a video about someone they can identify with uh walking through a crowd and getting bumped into may make their anxiety rise a little bit. And so that might be a good first video. Um I, I like what you're they saying. Go out
0: I like what you're saying first though, because there's a part of me that's like, I I can I can hear some of the folks I've consulted with saying, well, a video is not the same as doing it. It's not.
2: No, it's definitely not. Or or
0: seeing it on the internet or hearing the sound recording. It's a little bit of a different experience because they can convince themselves that this isn't happening to them right now. But it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is this is a good like bridge step, right? That from not doing it at all to to doing it and, and having this this bridge step to help them to get engaged and get get off of you know inertia. And and to to start to feel and access those feelings that come with that exposure.
2: You know, some I just got a consultation uh, from someone uh, yesterday who had sent someone out to do driving exposure. So they were driving. Um, And, and they had been in a motor vehicle accident. So this was a big exposure for them. And the, the therapist had started them out doing, doing driving and it was a suds of a 70 and the person threw up because they got so anxious. Um, and they hadn't had that symptom in the past. So they hadn't, throwing up hadn't been part of their, that is part of some people's anxiety, but it wasn't for this client that she habitually would throw up when she was anxious, but she, um, she threw up, um, and so the, the therapist wanted to stop PE and do a bunch of relaxation training and, and calming exercises. And so we talked about that. And, and you know that I told them not to do that, right? I was going to say that the but
1: police show up at the door at that
2: point. <laughs> so, woo woo. so you know, for them, I mean, the, the most obvious piece of consultation, helpful advice I could have I given that situation is let's not start at the 70s. Um, and so, you know, sending someone out to drive in a situation, I mean, driving is like crowds, right? Especially if it's a motor vehicle accident, how many different stimuli make you worry about accidents if you've had a motor vehicle accident? I mean, even if you've had a little fender bender and you get back into the car again, I mean, there are all kinds of things you now watch differently and you do differently and more carefully as you sort of get used to driving again after an accident. And so, um, so we, we, we want to start lower. And, and so the therapist was reluctant to have the patient sit in their car and, and, you know, drive around the block in their neighborhood because that didn't get them really uncomfortable, but it did make their anxiety rise. And, and it was, you know, it was something at about a 40 and, and that's where I would have wanted them to start. And so I want to say about, you know, about the, about those untoward reactions that happen and, and, um, Exposure, throwing up, for example, or having a panic attack would be another one. I mean, we want to avoid stuff like that. We, we don't want our patients to experience anxiety that's so overwhelming that they have a panic attack or throw up. Now, if they do, it's not the end of the world, and we can, we can help them with that. But what we run the risk of doing when we allow that to happen, when we assign things that are too high and we send people out um, – and, and they have that kind of reaction is we also set up a new association with the stimuli, which right. is now it's associated with throwing up, yeah. which is really uncomfortable. So
0: Especially in your car.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> they
2: so, so now the person not only is worried about having an accident, but they also are worried about throwing up. So now they have two things associated with driving that they get triggered and worry about. And so you can see how that would even become potentially a phobia.
1: You know, uh, and that that specific one sounds like a great one too. Where you've got technology, you've got screeching tires, yes, you've got, yes. you know, d- you know, driving simulated driving, all sorts of op- options there. So,
2: absolutely. I, I don't know if you all can remember the 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 blog that we put out in the beginning of the pandemic when we looked at our good old training tools that we have, and we have in our in our training packet, we have four examples of in vivo exposure um, items that might be paired with a particular type of trauma, not because everyone is is avoiding these things if you have that trauma, but because it's just helpful for new therapists to have a place to start to see what kinds of items might go on a hierarchy. So for, you know, motor vehicle accidents, we have, you know, wearing a seatbelt or not wearing a seatbelt or checking, you know, checking traffic or, you know, avoiding certain roads, things like that. And so you can ask your client about it. So we went back just as an exercise to see when the pandemic began, which of these items could actually be done regardless of the pandemic. And, And more than half of them were, unchanged I mean there yeah. were things like you know watching a video about this or or smell a smell or a sound or um, you know different things that that the pandemic wouldn't have changed at all, and then there were many many others that could be confronted via technology, like you were saying, so you know videos and sound sound clips of screeching tires and things like that so um, it wasn't that the pandemic limited the people greatly in what they could do, but it it sort of challenged their creativity to figure out how to do things differently if if they were in that situation. Flex new muscles. Yeah, flex new muscle.
0: Which outside of the pandemic is still a good muscle to flex. I mean, it's a, it's a good skill to develop anyway, Is to think about creativity and how do we do these differently.
2: We, what, yeah. So one question I, I
0: had for you, and, and and this really speaks to what you were just talking about, that there are a number of things that you know we might commonly hear or that might commonly appear on a hierarchy that are unchanged. We have some that require a little bit of adjustment and there may be some that we just don't do because mm-hmm. of the pandemic or because of whatever the circumstances are that those things are truly dangerous, you know, whereas in other circumstances, they wouldn't be. But I guess that, you know, and it speaks to, too, earlier you said that there are some things we can start with, things that are going to be lower on the list or that we can simplify and focus on one stimuli at a time. And, you know, maybe we we can put off some of those others. But one question that I that I keep getting as well is, well, but, you know, that this pandemic has certainly lasted longer than anybody initially thought. So putting things off... You know, therapy was ending before the pandemic ended, and or you know, it's just it, we, putting things off indefinitely. Maybe that was an issue. There, I, there are a lot of therapists I've worked with that worry that if we don't hit everything on the hierarchy in some way, then therapy is still destined to not be effective. Right? That that there, if we have to put stuff off, or if they, you know, if crowds really is the thing, and wearing the mask changes it so that it's not as effective, wow, that's not going to be an effective therapy. Can you speak to the idea of? Do we have to hit everything on that list?
2: Well, Um, I mean, I'm a completer. I like to hit everything on the list, Sure, (laughs) but you can't. And and I've had many cases where I didn't hit everything on the list for lots of reasons other than the pandemic. And I think there's a few things to think about when you have a client and there are things that you can't get to on that list. Number one is that... we have this wonderful behavioral principle of generalization that occurs. Mm -hmm. So the more things you hit, the less anxiety provoking all of the items become. Because the patient not only is learning specific information about situations that they actually go into in their in vivo exposures, but they're learning how their anxiety works. Right, and so they're learning that yes, even if I do this and I feel anxious, my anxiety can begin to dissipate, and I can confront these situations without flying apart or, or you know, losing it somehow or, or getting harmed. And so they begin to have more courage to even take on things that they didn't have previously, and so that begins to change. Even if we don't confront every situation, Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are some patients who may worry. That if they don't do something on their list, that they somehow didn't complete therapy, or, or they'll somehow never be able to do it, or if they're some, one of those patients that isn't hasn't quite made the progress you want, and they're they're still somewhat symptomatic, and you're coming toward the end of treatment, and one of the things you could try to do, and this this is off protocol, this is not part of the PE protocol, but it's not inconsistent with PE, and that is you could do imaginal exposure with the in vivo situation so you could have the person close their eyes have them walk and and in this case i would help them develop a script um and so this would be a little bit different than um uh I, i don't know that i would do it like an like a complete ocd imaginal exposure where we have these outlandish outcomes that people worry about but i would have have them imagine some of the negative outcomes that could happen in that situation and walk their way through it and, and kind of look at it. But, um, I, you know, this is, this is something you could try with a patient and monitor SUDs and, and use the data that you get to see if it's impacting their level of anxiety. So that's one thing that you could try. Yeah. Uh, I like but I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about completion as much as it, you can also look and, and see if there are other things on the hierarchy that are similar. Make sure mm-hmm. that they've done those things. Um,
0: I think that's something that we've talked about before that was really useful as well, right? That even if the specific item on the list either can't be done or there's some constraint that gets in the way, what you talked about earlier—asking the client what it is this, you know, this this terrible outcome that they would anticipate, or what is it that that they're actually avoiding about that situation—perhaps mm-hmm. we can come up with. Alternative situations that are still getting at that same concern, that same worry, that same anticipated bad outcome, that are accessible.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, worked on that same thing. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And and this may not even be really relevant to today, but at the at the start of the pandemic, there were a lot of therapists that we consulted with that were unsure if PE could even be done at all in a telehealth kind of context because mm-hmm. you know we, we all found ourselves all of a sudden clinics were being shut down and and you know people were in the middle of therapy or or just starting therapy and you know didn't f- either didn't feel safe coming into clinics that were open or just didn't even have that option. And we were all suddenly found ourselves doing therapy online. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was lots of worries about can PE even be done this way? You know, if I can only see people from the shoulders up, am I getting enough information about how this is landing on or them? via
1: telephone.
0: Or on the telephone, absolutely. Um, Or even just the idea, you know, like recordings not working right like we would if we were face-to-face, like all that kind of stuff. I think everybody that's been doing this has learned that, yes, you can. Of course, you can do PE via telehealth. Yeah. But are there any kind of themes that have come up about ideas that people could use on, on how to make that transition easier if they haven't already been forced to do it, to do like PE or other ABPs via telehealth?
1: I was I was just going to say quickly one thing that I think is important is having a conversation about what you know, the practical stuff. Where are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, you're having trouble sleeping. Let's not sit on the bed and do imaginal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how right. do you build in some time before to get your head on? How do you build in some time after before you open the door to three children? So there's just some practical things. I think if you stop Absolutely. before you start with your client, and say let's let's set this up to make it most successful for you. Um, you know, where they're not going to be interrupted. I mean, we've had people do some really different stuff and it's been okay i mean i think that's the other thing the robustness yes. the only place this person can do it is on their front porch and it was okay you know or their car so, or their car um which not driving know, again, a if, it, if it was an accident <laughs> if it was a trauma related to driving maybe not but you know a, again the the devil's the, the devil's in the details and making sure that you're talking preparation that so is everything yeah for sure and and
2: So we can tell people about our little form that they can download online because we uh, through working in the pandemic and and getting people who really weren't prepared to do telehealth ready to do telehealth. I mean, if you think about it, when you walk into uh, your therapist's office, uh, there are cues that tell you how to behave. And you know you're supposed to pay attention to the person in front of you and you you sit in a chair and you don't multitask and you don't check your email while you're doing therapy and you don't, you know, there are lots of other things. The other thing is you have a little time in the waiting room before you go in to kind of think about what you're going to talk about. And then you have some time when you leave the session. Before you get home to kind of decompress and, and re enter your life again, you don't have any of that in telehealth. And people don't know to make that time. People don't naturally just kind of figure out how to do that. So we created a form and we added to it over the, the entire pandemic uh, to think just things that we had run into. So to let the clients know what they needed to do, how they needed to treat their telehealth session, um, and how to take some time before and after to kind of put themselves together. And so, um, you can find that on our website. We can put the, can we put links in, in the, um,
0: the show notes
2: next to the, in the show notes or something near the podcast so that people can see the links to that. I I think a lot of our therapists have found that really helpful. Um, and having it in a form helps you a not forget what to tell the client, but it also gives the client, um, a sense of the formality of therapy mm-hmm. that, you know, we've, I mean, we've had some crazy stories. We've had people uh, consult with us and tell us that they were doing, uh, they, they could hear a noise in the background. They asked their client what it was that they were going through the drive through at a fast food restaurant. Right. <laughs> you know, we've ha- had people, you know, you can kind of tell they're clicking to another app on their, on their computer while they're talking to you, checking their email. I mean, you wouldn't do that in the office. You wouldn't even have access to that in the office. And so People really have in these days gotten used to, you know, if they have their computer open, they're multitasking, they're having all kinds of things going and you become part of that environment. I think it's worthwhile telling the client that we don't do that in therapy and helping them understand that this is really precious time mm-hmm. and it needs to be really focused on the goals at hand. And and it helps them do that when they have a little bit of preparation.
0: I I, I appreciate that a lot because I think we don't, it becomes so second nature to us when we're meeting face to face that we don't think about that necessarily when we're making that transition. But it becomes a really important piece for for seeing anybody. And I and I like too the the idea that you know this this does work. Like we can do this, and while it will look a little bit different, and while we may do things slightly differently, whether that's you know for the session practically itself, or for in vivo exposure homework, or whatever it may be, that that people can really still. Take advantage of these principles and and you know, get the, get the benefits of doing therapy. And I mean, in, in many ways, it gives us as therapists like a, a new opportunity to to yeah. develop some new muscles too. And you know, kind of think about how are we adjusting to the, the real time demands, um, that are going on in front of us. It, it, it's kind of cool that we have to think about how we might do things differently in an effective yeah. way too. I, like I that. think
1: all of us have tried to relay that message to the folks we consult with. Like, let's not see this as a problem. Let's see it as an opportunity to, you know, really do it, some of it's unchartered territory for sure. Yeah. And, you know, we're, 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 we're going to get a lot of information out of this, but I think the, uh, seeing it as an opportunity and what's the alternative right like if we don't do this what's the alternative so we you know it can work Um, I think all of us want to reinforce for all you out there um, consultation can be key you know don't don't struggle alone Uh, don't try to muddle through this Uh, so hopefully you've got colleagues you can consult with and certainly um, you know we have we have great consultation here that that all of us are really passionate about so uh, we will definitely put some links in the in the show notes. But I do want to thank you so much, Kelly, for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, if you had one um, actionable intel, so we try to leave our listeners with like an actionable intel, an item, a thing they can do that can sort of change their practice tomorrow. What what would be one thing a, a provider could do um, or our, our, our listeners could do to help move them forward with this?
2: If I had to give one takeaway, I would say trust the treatment. Trust the treatment. This treatment has been um, tested in many, many different places with many different kinds of people, many different kinds of therapists, and it works. And it works over telehealth. We have lots of data to show that. And so I would say trust the treatment, and I would say use the tools to, that that you have and we have lots of tools for you on our website to help you make adaptations when you need to. But the treatment is a robust treatment; it can stand up to the pandemic. <laughs> um, and we have seen people do some great work over telehealth who were not prepared to do phenomenal that. work. Phenomenal work. And we have seen people um, actually benefit from telehealth in unexpected ways because right. accessibility mm-hmm. is an issue for many people, and being able to get your therapy. On your computer screen, instead of having to travel to it is a gift for some people. And, and therapists have been reluctant to provide that because they have all these concerns about it. but when they were forced to do it by the pandemic, it turns out their clients really benefited. and I think people have at least appreciated that um, this is a new way we can help people. and you know we're not um, so rich in ways to help people that we can turn any of them down. So I think being, being able to reach people on telehealth is is really is something everyone should really try to add. There's to no your, going
1: back now. The There's no going back.
2: <laughs> you know, and, and I I there are we've also heard heard um anecdotes from people where telehealth really was a bad choice for a client. It wasn't, it wasn't right. the best modality for them. And that's going to be true for people as well. And even for therapists, there are some therapists who just can't Absolutely. get comfortable in telehealth. And I think that's, uh, that's reasonable. And, and in that case, you should not do it. You should do face-to-face therapy and, and the patient and okay if okay at all it. possible. Yeah. The patient should get face-to-face therapy as well. But, but if there is no alternative, um, then This is not a second best choice. Telehealth is a real and viable option for people and and it can work as well as face-to-face therapy.
0: I, I think of it really as we, we've all as therapists been forced to go through the same process we ask our clients to go through, right? We were avoiding this thing yeah. called telehealth for a long time because we had all these really bad anticipated outcomes that were going to happen if we did it. Um, now we've been forced into that situation to confront it and, and to do it and to try it out. And it turns out many of those anticipated bad outcomes that we worried about aren't happening and people are getting better and we're adjusting our expectations. so
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Kelly. We will definitely be having you back multiple times uh, and always value your experience and insights. And thanks for all you thank do you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please
0: feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments.
1: Until next time.